Now face it, who doesn't love their furry friend going everywhere with them? You take them in your vehicle, on hikes, for walks, they sleep in your bed, don't deny it. And for many, they're just simply one of your best friends, even like family. But what if you aren't taking your four-wheeled transport? What if you want to ride your bike on that trip to the store or maybe on a long trip? If you love your dog and you love your bike, there's options for bringing them both along for the ride. There's dog carriers, there's goggles, there's dog helmets, all available to keep your dog safer on the bike. There's even a custom Kevlar suit made by seamstress Aileen Toynton in the UK. And for the bigger pooches, well, you may have to invest in a sidecar to give them that extra space. There's no doubt that traveling with dogs has its challenges and its rewards. And there's certainly some sacrifices to be made along the way. Today, we're going to talk with Stuart and Janelle Clark, who've been riding with their dogs on the back of their bikes for over two years. We're also going to speak with Eric Regian, who has his best friend, Spirit, a dog, traveling beside him in his sidecar for over 10 years. And these riders, they wouldn't have it any other way. Their friends riding with them, feeling the wind in their fur or hair or whatever. And if you ask the dogs, we're sure they would tell you that it beats sticking the head out of the car window any day. We're also going to talk with moto journalist Zach Kerlick, who writes for Canada Moto Guide. Zach has a theory that the 650 Thumpers, the ones most of us love, those large single-cylinder adventure bikes, are on the verge of disappearing from the manufacturer's lineups, which could explain the lack of updates they've seen over the years. He wrote an article called The End of Big Thump, which we're going to talk about today on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Jim Martin. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by the following. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Cox. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Mm-hmm. 
Stuart and Janelle Clark have been traveling for the past two and a half years with their dogs on their motorcycles, passing through 23 different countries. Starting out in Sydney, Australia in 2014, they say that traveling with the dogs has made their adventure unique and creating some lasting memories for them. The Clarks have some great tips about crossing borders with animals, accommodation, the paperwork involved, dog care while on the road, and much more. It may not be as difficult as you think. They've also designed their own dog carrier, something completely different, to be mounted on the back of a motorcycle that they call the Pillion Pooch. When they spoke with us, they were stopped over in the UK while preparing for the next leg of their journey, which will take them into Africa. My name's Stuart Clark. I'm from Australia. I was in the Australian Navy for 12 years. My name's Janelle Clark. I'm 30 years old and I'm a civil engineer. And before I started adventure riding, I worked in local council. Janelle and Stuart, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Jim. Now, you guys are where right now? We're currently in a tiny little village called Witchford, which is in the Cotswolds in the UK. And we've been here since January. And we've just taken a spell from our round-the-world adventure to stop and work, uh, make a bit of money for the next leg of our trip, which is hopefully going to be Europe and Africa. Well, you guys are originally from Sydney, Australia, and you've been on the road since, what, February 2014? Yep, that's right. So February 2014 to now. Now, what makes it a little bit different in your case for the two of you is that you're traveling with a dog. Actually, I think more than one dog at this point. Yes, yes, two dogs now. So you have two dogs. Obviously not a lot of people travel with dogs. I'm sure you guys have been getting a lot of attention because of it. You call yourselves the Pack Track, um, which is uh, your Twitter handle. Why the Pack Track? Well, when <laughs> before we started traveling, we um, we wanted some way of keeping track of our journey for family and friends to follow us. And we knew we wanted, we had the ability to set up a website ourselves and we wanted to come up with something catchy, you know, a cool name. We came up with silly call signs when we were on comms. <laughs> they actually didn't stick. But uh, the pack track was something we, we came up with because it was the two of us and our dog. So we were a pack and we were going on a track. <laughs> basically. <laughs> <laughs> so have you guys always been dog people? Yes, yes. Dog people. I don't know. That's that's not a negative thing you realize when I'm saying it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We definitely don't take that as a negative thing. <laughs> yeah, we, we both grew up with dogs. So uh, it was, yeah, it was the idea of traveling with dogs was just natural to us. Have you been traveling with dogs before you started riding your motorcycles around the world? Yeah, so we were keen four-wheel drivers in Australia, uh, not not really into motorbikes. We we did ride. Um, we rode Harleys just as a form of transport, really, because it was a lot faster getting around the traffic in Sydney. But when we had holidays, we'd take off in our Nissan Patrol, throw everything in the back of um, in the back, take out the seats, including the dog, and we'd go off as far as we could uh, to see a lot of the beautiful and really remote places Australia has to offer. And we never, ever went without our dog. She was uh, she was always with us. When you planned this motorcycle trip, was it a trip about taking a dog around the world? Or was it a trip 
about you guys going on motorcycles. I mean, maybe you should back up. Maybe we should talk about first how you went from four-wheel drives to motorcycles because there is quite a change over there. Yeah, the it was we, – we definitely considered driving around the world. We, we kind of did a, a cost comparison and it just very quickly became uh, – yeah, became obvious that bikes were – were a much cheaper way of doing it. It gave us a lot more flexibility. We could move them a lot easier. We, um, like crossing the Darien Gap, uh, we just threw it on a sailboat. And, and we'd done this research and knew what our options were and where the barriers were going to be. And uh, a car to do all the places we wanted to do just didn't really make sense, And especially when comparing it to motorbikes that are so versatile and um, yeah, just so easy to travel with. There's so much information out there from people that have done similar trips. So it, uh, as much as we uh, we love the idea of the convenience and everything of of a, a nice big four wheel drive, it um, yeah, there's certainly much more adventure on a motorbike. And um, yeah, it was it uh, it wasn't hard to to make that decision. It was hard to talk Janelle into it. <laughs> so cost is the thing that pushed you towards the bike. And it, it wasn't the love of riding and, and the thought of riding these bikes long distances. That's an interesting and, and honest approach. Yeah, we, we're not. I mean, we did. We had Harleys in Australia at the, the 883 Sportster. And they're a lovely bike. Mm, yeah. um, they And they were a lot of fun. But we never did very much traveling on them. They really were just, you, you know, you could get in the bus lanes in Sydney traffic and just go flying past all the cars and half your, your travel time. And we, we definitely enjoyed them, but we, we had always been four-wheel drive people. And I'd never ridden anything other than a cruiser because <laughs> I could get my feet on the ground. So it was it was also a little nerve-wracking, the idea of doing it on, on these kind of dual sport bikes. So, okay, now I understand why you're riding the motorcycles then. So with that, you just figured, well, obviously we're going to take our dog. That was just not a question, I guess. Well, Stu wanted, he he had always, as long as I'd known him, he'd wanted to go traveling around the world and at least for six months. And once we got Skylar, there was, I was just like, well, that's not happening because, you know, everyone tells you that you can't go traveling around the world with a dog. But I said to him, if you want to go, I'll go as long as you want if we take the dog. That was my only requirement. <laughs> so the trip around the world, though, I'm sort of curious. You were saying it, it's Stuart that was sort of always wanting to do this trip around the world. What is it about a trip around the world? Is it the place you're going to see? Is it the idea of, of going around the world and saying, you know, sort of, yes, I've done that. I've been around the world by vehicle or bike or whatever. What was it about that? Um, well, we had traveled to quite a bit actually the the both of us we'd traveled individually and we had traveled as a couple but we'd always we'd always seen kind of a, a false version of the world or of foreign countries we'd stayed in five star hotels and we'd gone on tours to shanty villas and things like that but but you don't really get any real exposure to it it's all it all it's just the, the tourist version but during my time in the navy i'd Traveled to Africa and to Asia. I, I did a d- deployment to South Sudan, and I really got it immersed in the cultures wherever I went. And I really got to understand that there that there's so much out there that we don't see. And even the Navy's version is still very um, sorry. The, the deployed version, you're still very protected, and you're, you're looked after, and you're staying in hotels, and you're not really experiencing the culture as much as I really wanted to. But I'd, I'd had that glimpse at it 
and I I wanted to really uh, really see it and really travel it. And I think the the only way to do that is to travel like that. So, um, and the longer I spent and the more places I visited that way, it just the passion just grew and grew, and I I just had to do it. There's a bit of a, a like a physical problem here because you've got a dog and you've got a motorcycle and connecting the two together is often, well, somewhat difficult. So did you do a sidecar? We did a lot of research. We looked at various options on the internet. We, um, we looked at converting motorbike trailers to carry a dog. We looked at sidecars. We looked at various things that were that mounted on motorcycles, but nothing quite worked for us. A lot of the the pet carriers for motorcycles are for very small dogs. And Skylar was, she was about 25 kilos. She was quite a tall dog. So she wasn't going to fit in anything like that. So after all the research we did and, and different things we went to see, we realized that there just wasn't anything on the market that could, that would suit our adventure. Because we knew we'd be going in all sorts of climates where there'd be rain, there'd be cold, there'd be wind. And we wanted to know that she was going to be safe and comfortable. So uh, both being engineers, we decided we would just design something ourselves. And we found some local fabricators in Sydney uh, who (laughs) gave us a funny look when we told them what we wanted but worked really well with us and we came up with the what we call the pillion pooch, which is a, a metal frame and base that had to be able to mount onto any motorcycle, any rack, because when we had it made, we didn't know what we'd be riding because um, we, we purchased our bikes in the USA and we didn't see them. And it had to fit her and it, and it had to meet all those requirements. So if it was going to be hot, she needed to be able to get plenty of ventilation and shade. If it was going to be cold and wet, she needed to be safe from the elements. Um, so yeah, so we came up with the with the pillion pooch, and two and a half years later, it's been it's been perfect. We've tweaked it a little bit here and there, but essentially, what we came up with was really ideal. So you end up designing, typical engineer, I guess, <laughs> you guys end up working together to design this thing to put your dog on the back of the motorcycle. But you started taking that one step further because now you're thinking of doing it in mass production, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. That, that's something we've used this time in the UK for, to refine the CAD drawings that we came up with for it and get a second one made up and um, and have that that second one actually we made a lot of changes to it to to get things exactly how we wanted them uh, and while we're actually on the road we've had three canvas covers made up for the original one and uh, the last one we just uh, we nailed it <laughs> we really uh, it was something that we learned on the way the um the frame was was the original frame but the the canvas cover just it always needed something there was always something not quite right with it for the first two and then the third one we um we uh yeah we're just really happy with how it looks and what it did so this is almost a squared off basket on the back uh, with um it almost looked like one of those big handles going up uh, a chain mounted to the top to fasten the dog to and then it's all covered in fabric That's, that's basically what we're talking about here well, it's it's. Um, I mean, simplifying yeah, it, 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 it's yeah. Met, it's made. It's a metal frame, so it's it's like high grade aluminium and, and steel fastenings with the yeah with the waterproof canvas, and then it's actually two layers of material because um, we uh, we couldn't get 
the bright coloured canvas that we wanted because the pack track colours are black and yellow and we really it's really nice having that high visibility on the back of the bike. So it's actually a two-layered material. You said you bought your bikes in the U.S., so you flew to the U.S. and started your bike yeah, trip there? Yeah, we flew to Texas um, with, with Skylar, and that's where we picked up our bikes and kitted them up, and then we headed through Mexico, Central America. We went all over South America, came back to the USA from Bogota. We flew into Miami, and then we went up to see a bit of Canada and a fair chunk of the U.S., and then over to, oh, a little bit more of Mexico, we went into Baja, and then over to the UK. So 20, 23 countries, if you include Australia. 23 countries, that's a lot of borders to cross. That's a lot of paperwork to deal with. Mm. How do the dog react? I mean, you've got this thing you put on the back of your motorcycle. You all of a sudden say to the dog, okay, let's go, get up into this thing. And it's thinking, where's the Nissan Patrol? <laughs> yeah, we, we took, well, for Skylar, our, our pit bull, we took a really, um, really good approach. We, we first of all put it on the ground and we fed her in there, and you know we spent a day just getting it used to it as as a kennel. Then we put it up on the bike without styling it at all, and, and got her up in there, and um, and again used food as an incentive, and she was happy with that. And then uh, we'd start it up and we'd feed her in there, and then we, you know, in between each of these, it, there'd be a, a night, so we. She'd have got used to it completely, and then and then the next step, and then we just went around the block for a, a short ride and uh, giving her food as we we're riding, and then uh, the next day we we went out for a longer ride. And um, luckily with Skylar, she didn't at all fear the bikes. When we used to come in, uh, the the roller door would go up, and we'd we'd ride in on our motorbikes, and she'd be standing there wagging her tail. So she was used to the the bikes coming in and and it kind of was like she she wanted to join us so when she had this opportunity when we had got this thing designed for her and we were able to take her she uh she was really happy so so it wasn't a problem at all and for riding long distances it didn't take her long to get the hang of it she seems to be happy or seemed to be happy there well we don't do very long distances um when we're riding we try to to do three no more than three to four hundred kilometers a day, which is why it's taken us so long. <laughs> but um, we break it up. It's you know it's good for us. It's good for the dog. It just makes everything a lot safer and more comfortable. Regular water breaks, toilet breaks, walk breaks. Um, it's uh, rather than just getting on the bike and riding. But but basically no, she she the, the distance didn't mean anything to her she uh, she she loved being on there and the same with the other two that we've got they they took a little bit longer to uh, so they they were kind of thrown in the deep end with it because we just had to move we were we were already traveling when we picked these two up so um so there wasn't any time for them to really get used to it they were but um but it wasn't a problem they they were a little bit quieter in there because we were going on longer rides straight up but after a couple of days they were sticking their head out as normal and um and wanting to to see things we, we actually haven't introduced shadow yet shadow shadow's our third dog so we're traveling with negrita and shadow at the moment okay and you haven't introduced shadow as in you mean to our conversation or you mean to the bikes yes. yet oh no into the conversation yet okay, i don't so, want to forget and, about so it. where does shadow come in on this you were riding around with one dog up until then where did you get the other dog 
Okay, so we had Negrita for about eight months. We'd gone down. We got her in Venezuela. We'd gone down to the bottom of Argentina and back up, and we were about three days from flying out of uh, Bogota. And I'd had a, I'd had a bike problem, and I had to stop and, and see a mechanic. But we'd organised uh, flights, and we had someone. We had the, the bikes booked into flights, and us uh, booked into flights. So it was, we were about three days out of. Bogota and so Janelle rode ahead to to sort out the paperwork and I stayed with the mechanic and got my bike sorted and stayed the night where where I stopped and then I was following her a couple of days behind and just before I arrived in Bogota a shadow darted out in front of me and I narrowly missed, missed her as I um uh, as I came around a corner but I saw in my rearview mirror as a, a low car went straight over the top of her so she went straight between the wheels but um, so the wheels didn't hit her, but something on the underside of the car clipped her on the eye. And uh, I pulled over and the car took off and I, um, I ran out and grabbed her. I thought she was dead because she was just petrified. There was absolutely no movement. And uh, I picked her up off the road and I thought she was a puppy because she's so tiny. And um, But she definitely was alive. And uh, I asked around and everyone, oh, there were some kids there. It was a pretty rural area. There were kids there that just said that she uh, – She'd been hanging around for the last few months, but um, but she didn't really belong to anyone. And they just told me just to put her back on the road and just let her go. But, of course, we I wasn't going to do that. She looked like she was in a terrible state. So um, so I chucked her in the pillion pooch with Negrita and uh, rode into Bogota, got to a vet and uh, got her fixed up. We got all the paperwork done for her rabies jab and um, uh, and everything for flying her into the U.S. And uh, we, we had to... Um, push back our flight by a few days, but um, but yeah, we uh, we flew her into into the US with us just just after having surgery. Uh, paperwork was the next thing I wanted to ask about. Was how did you find out what paperwork you needed first of all? Um, we the focus the original focus was just on getting from Australia into the USA. We had found this website that. You could pay so much, and they would uh, they would send you all the paperwork you needed for any country you were going. And we thought we were going around the world, so we ticked all the boxes for so many countries and had these two folders of paperwork sent out to us. And every single country looked exactly the same. The paperwork, uh, anyway, <laughs> you mean just with a like, different oh, country's logo. Yeah, on? yeah, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> and we're like, all right, well, it can't be too hard. Uh, getting out of Australia into the US was a lot of a lot of paperwork and um, all all within a couple of days of flying, you have to go out to the airport, then you have to go to your vet to get things and they have to fill in and you have to get worming tablets. And then, So you're going back between the airport and your vet and luckily we lived only about an hour's drive from the airport in Sydney. So it wasn't too bad but it's, it's really quite it's, – it's if you're organised – um, you can you can definitely hire companies to do these things for you where they come and pick your dog up and they do all the paperwork and they put them on the plane and you meet them, but you can also save a lot of money by doing it yourself. So we went with that option. Um, so that, that, was, that was a little difficult and we thought, oh, well, not difficult, but um, just took a lot of time. So we, we, we did that and then we had this folder of paperwork for all these other countries we were going to go through and Mexico was our first land border crossing and we were really nervous. 
Uh, I'd filled in all the paperwork. We decided we'd go to a local vet in Texas anyway just to make sure that everything was okay because we didn't want to have problems. And when we got to the Mexico border, they didn't even care. (laughs) (laughs) They they didn't bother. They they weren't worried about the dogs. They weren't interested in the dog at all. (laughs) So all that. But, you know, we definitely agree that it was better to be prepared than not. And and it certainly wasn't like that in every country. Um, in Belize, when we turned up to the border, they said that we hadn't filled in some online form, so there was a $50 fine. Okay, well, we paid $50 and we got in with the dog. There was no problem there. We always carry um, up-to-date vaccination certificates, and that's really important. And if you can get them translated into, if you're in Latin America, into Spanish, um, if you're going into Brazil, Portuguese, that's really handy. We didn't have a pet passport. That's something that we've done since we've been in the UK. We've got uh, both of our girls' pet passports. But it varied. So Central America was like, it's like a deluge of border crossings. You can do them almost every day if you're traveling fairly quickly. Some countries were okay. They didn't care. Other countries would get you to just fill in paperwork and things. There was never any quarantine. There was never a problem if you had the paperwork and you filled in all the forms and you went to the right, you know, tick all the boxes, it was, it's straightforward. A $50 fine? Is that, is that real? Like, I mean, is that a real I fine? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or do they, they just see you and figure, I can get 50 bucks from these people. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so you never did find the online thing you missed or did you not look for it? Didn't look for it. There's no point. <laughs> Once the money's gone, it's gone. You'd mentioned the co- the different companies you can hire to do the border crossings for you. Was that just in Australia or is, do, you, do you find these around the world? That, no, the company we used was a, a U.S. company. Um, I can't remember the, the website, but uh, I can certainly find it afterwards and um, and send it to you. Sure. No, I'm, I'm thinking, though, like you when you're um, – when you're getting to the border and you were saying there's some companies that come pick up your dog and take them across the border and and do all that work for you. What I'm wondering is, are those companies found around the world or is that only going to be in countries like Australia or the United States? Um, I don't, I don't, we never looked into it in, in anywhere in Latin America because it was always land borders that we Mm -hmm. were doing. Oh, that's not true. It was mostly land borders. Um, We did say when we sailed from Panama into Colombia, there was nothing for the dog. They didn't worry about it. But um, I know that when we went from the USA into the UK, you could, again, hire someone to do everything for the dog for you. But again, we chose to do it ourselves. Mm, I see. Uh, So uh, that's interesting. You mentioned a, a pet passport. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the pet passport is a, it's a European, so it's, it's an EU, um, piece of paperwork or document it's and when you've got it it's it lasts as long as the the rabies jab so as soon as your rabies jab runs out the pet passport runs out but if you just keep updating it i mean the the rabies jab we've now got for our two dogs is a three-year rabies jab so we can now leave uh, the eu travel around africa and come back and, and go straight back into europe and um this uh, this document will will allow us to come in from anywhere we go. It's also uh, it, it's also 
the official document for traveling through everywhere in in Africa or anywhere in the world as as far as most um, most countries are concerned they they recognize it it's uh, it's the equivalent of uh, the like the health uh, health certificate that you get in the US so that's what we use to travel from the US to into the UK but uh, the health certificate I think has a, a time limit it only lasts for a certain period of time but um, these pet passports last for for as long as the um, as the rabies jab. Wow, that is a really good tip. Boy, that is that sounds like that is the key. If you're doing much traveling with a dog, definitely, I'd, I think I would want to go for that for less hassle, yeah. especially if it rec- it's recognized everywhere. I mean, that's incredible. It takes a lot. Yeah, I am um, starting to question myself on that a bit, but I know... Uh, well, I mean, let's just say, I mean, you know, if it's recognized in a lot of places, that could save a lot. It really organizes things into one small item yeah, and simplifies it's, things. It's got all your, yeah, it's got your vaccinations in one document that's stamped and the vet signature. It's got your, uh, if you've done a, a blood test to, to show that the... The test. The teeter test to show that the uh, the vaccine is actually active, that's filled in and, and signed um, and it's uh, we were told that in uh, in some countries in Africa that they don't believe that the vaccine will last for three years. They want to see it every twelve months. So we'll have to get even though the um, the document doesn't uh, won't take it every uh, twelve months. Or actually, the document can't be signed by a non EU vet. So um, so but, but we still will get a vac- uh, vaccine vaccination and travel with uh, with that other document from some vet after 12 months so we've always we'll always have a 12 month certificate with us what happens if you get to the border and you, they're saying you don't have the proper paperwork at that point do they quarantine the dog no we would never let that happen we would just drive back into the country find a vet and um this is the beauty of a land border you can just turn around and, and go in the other direction we arrived at the chile border uh up in the andes about 400 kilometers from the nearest town and we were turned away because our paperwork had expired we had a we had a, a health certificate done by the argentinian uh, by an argentinian vet and we'd been crossing back and forth between chile and argentina as we were going up over the andes and uh, we turned up to our the last time we were going to be entering into chile and our certificate had expired it actually had expired a number of border crossings beforehand but None of the border officials had worried about it before, but this particular one, uh, the official said, "No, this is—it's not good enough. Um, You'll—you uh, you have to get the right paperwork." So we had to ride 400 kilometres back to the town. And as these things always occur, uh, it was a Friday. Uh, sorry, it was the Thursday that we were at the border. The ride back took all day on the Friday. It was a long weekend, so the public holiday on the Monday, so we couldn't get the paperwork till the Tuesday, and then we had to ride back to the border. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's uh, that's one of the joys of traveling with the dog. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask about other things too. Like one of the first things that comes to mind when you're traveling with animals, especially for those of us who have animals, is dog food. You're traveling in a couple of BMW uh, uh, 650 GSs. What are you doing for dog food? It's heavy, it's um, bulky. Um, yeah, we usually carry dog food. Um, in in the USA and in the UK and Australia, you know, you can you have a great selection and in terms of the quality and composition of the dog food and the sizes of the bags. In a lot of places in Latin America, you go into a pet store and they just kind of have these big bins and you 
get a bag and you scoop out as much as you want. And but so you can get dog food um, in most places. The only the only place really had problem getting dog food was in Venezuela, and that's because they've got a lot of problems right now uh, where the government's preventing a lot of imports into the country, and it's it's a lot worse now than when we were there. Um, but uh, we. We had there's a, there's enough space in the pillion pooch where you can actually keep a bag of dog food if your dog won't eat it while they're riding. <laughs> uh, but we, but you can also um, you can substitute with with rice and meat and and things if you if you run out or you get stuck. They can often eat what you can eat. You just have to watch the protein levels and make sure they're still getting the right nutrients. What about water? And that's the other thing, because I'll tell you what the, what I find with our dogs is, so you have a limited amount of water that you're carrying with you, and you stop, and you go to give them a drink, and you pour some in the bowl. It's really baking hot out. It's it's like everybody's thirsty. Pour a bit in the bowl. They look at it, they sniff it, and they walk away. And now you yeah. just wasted, you know, half a liter of water. And it's like you do this two or three times a day. Well, that, that adds up. Yeah, we would. We, we always had uh, camelbacks and, and bottles of water with us, so we always had water on hand, and we would only give them we'd only pour a little bit from our camelbacks into uh into a bowl at a time and if they finished that they got more but yeah we were um i mean we we weren't uh, going to be too worried about wasting like we, they weren't going to go thirsty because we were worried about wasting water but uh but we wouldn't be filling their bowl up yeah but we we were we were never far from somewhere where we could buy water there was really only been one point in our trip where we really had to carry water because we didn't know where we'd find it next and that was in Bolivia everywhere else we've always been able to just we've always been able to just buy it when you were talking about dog food going in and grabbing dog food do your dogs not notice or are they not sensitive from switching from one type of food to another as you go through and take what's available uh not so much they're um uh, i Sometimes we will notice that there's something that was not too good and and uh, and made them a little bit messy. Uh, but and actually, Shadow, our, our uh, four kilogram dog, she's very precious. She has to have wet food, the dry food uh, scratches the throat. But that's not a problem because we just uh, we just wet the the wet the dry food. We just pour water over it let it sit for 10 minutes and then she's got wet food so um yeah so we've uh, we've worked a way around that but the dogs survived on the street eating scraps and uh and just and a lot of human food anyway so they're actually they're actually used to just eating whatever they could so for, in that in that regard it's not been a problem at all are you know have you been camping or are you staying at hotels we do we do a variety uh, depending on the country and the costs involved. So we did in Argentina, we did a lot of camping. In Mexico, hotels were I mean I use the term hotel loosely. They were called hotels, but they weren't like hotels. Um, you could get somewhere for ten dollars a night with air conditioning, and it would save us a lot of time. We, when we were in Mexico, we were trying to cover a lot of ground fairly quickly, so it would save time during the day uh, that we would be packing and unpacking our tent. So it, it would it would depend on the climate and temperature. Yeah, sorry, climate costs. Uh, what we felt like doing as well. We we certainly enjoy camping, but I would say that we've done a fairly even mix. 
we don't have a high standard for hotel rooms, so we can we'd st- we'd easily stay in a. Um, a five or ten dollar hotel room. In fact, the cheapest hotel room we stayed in seventy five cents. So it, we because <laughs> we, we pull out that is a very good deal. <laughs> I mean, all, all we're after is a roof, and um, and we always put down our own sleeping bags. Uh, it's particularly good because the dogs jump in the sleeping bags with us, so we have zipped together sleeping bags, and all four of us can fit in the sleeping bag. Um, so and we have our own pillows. So all we're after is somewhere to put that stuff and keep us dry. Something that's just a little bit better than a tent. It, that's uh, we we're more than happy that we'd rather pay for something really cheap and not have to put up a tent than have to find somewhere to camp. Which and and often finding somewhere to camp can be quite a challenge. And uh, if you pay for it, you you can spend more than what we spend on a hotel. So yeah. Did you just say all four of you fit in the two sleeping bags? Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do. You do treat these dogs really well. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> there will be a lot of people listening to this shaking their head right now going, oh, man. <laughs> uh, well, I, I can justify it a little bit. All right, let's Not try. We, I mean, we did it with Skylar. There's no excuse. But with, with um, Negrita, she has epilepsy and... Um, if she's sleeping with us, beside us, we know if there's a seizure. If she's on the floor, we could sleep through it. What about Shadow? Shadow, well, you can't have one and not the other. <laughs> I like it. I like it. At least there's something for the both of them. So do you find when you've been camping that the, the dogs are pretty welcome? Well, I, I guess, are they barky type dogs? Do they bark at everything that goes by or are they sort of laid back? Um, depends. They can be barky dogs when there's other dogs around. Otherwise, they're pretty quiet. What is that like for camping everywhere? Do you find that you're accepted everywhere? Yeah, we we haven't had a problem. If a place has been pet friendly, we haven't had a problem with our dogs. Uh, we're pretty good at trying to introduce them to other dogs that are near us. So once they're introduced, they'll go quiet again. So um, so that's that's the key to, for us. The the dogs are actually. They're more popular than the bikes or us usually. Um, people love coming over and talking to the dogs. Yeah, they're a bit of an icebreaker for you. Yeah, they are. People people really warm up to animals. You know, if we're, if we're at a fuel station or we're somewhere having lunch um, and the dogs are either, depending on on the situation, um, they, they're either sitting up in, in the pillion pooch or we uh, pop their bed down on the ground in the shade and they hop on their bed with a bowl of water. People just want to come over and look at them, talk to them, <laughs> pat them. <laughs> and it's something you don't see very much. I mean, how often do you see a dog on a motorcycle? I mean, very rarely. Yeah, we, we were we were a little, I was a little nervous when we started our trip, what people might think. Um, but we've just had an overwhelming positive response. People People are often, you know, I've never seen that before and, oh, what a good idea. (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to say. I think it opens it up for a lot of people. Like you look at it and you go, oh, I could actually do that. You know, whereas you thought before you couldn't. So I think, yeah, it's probably something interesting to come across. Yeah. In Latin America, there's certainly a lot of people traveling around on their dogs, but not in a safe way and not uh, not in anything that looks something professional. It's a... it's just on their lap or being carried by the pillion on the back or... Uh, a milk crate. Yeah. <laughs> well, Australians are known for, or at least used to be known for dogs traveling on motorcycles on farms. Yes, that's true. Yeah. yeah but it's no longer allowed, I understand. 
Uh, well, I've just I've actually been spending a lot of time on uh, on legislation lately, and yeah, that, there is in some of the states there's a clause for 500 meters if you're a farmer. So they're still allowing the the farming dogs to sit on the on the lap of a of a motorbike and travel a very short distance basically for farming purposes so but otherwise yeah definitely not allowed you're not allowed to have a dog between you and the handlebars in any of the states in australia and that's becoming quite common in um in european countries and uh and, and other places around the world the yeah. law is becoming quite common yeah but to have the dog between you and the handlebar so if they're behind you that's okay right they're not interrupting your um your concentration or your interaction with the you know, the handlebars and... Uh, I was going to ask you about eye protection. They're, they're sticking their heads out of the uh, pillion pooch. What do you do for eye protection? they wearing little goggles or anything? No, they're not wearing goggles. We have tried with Skylar, we trialed the uh, doggles and we really wanted to, to get that to work. But she, she, we went through all the, the drills and she would be happy wearing them while there was food around and she, she'd keep them. But as soon as we got onto the bike... Particularly when we couldn't control her anymore, she knew that we were we were controlling the motorbike and that she could get away with things. She would knock it off. She she just um, yeah, she was really hard to 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 keep them on. And in fact, impossible. With Negrita and Shadow, they um, they're actually quite sheltered behind our backs. Shadow travels behind me. She's only little, and Negrita's behind Stu. And she, so her her eyes don't so much. She really has to be leaning out to get her eyes um, actually in the wind. She's often behind Stu, sort of sheltered. But there is um, a friend of ours is using. It's like almost like snowboarding goggles. Uh, I can't remember the name. And we we're looking to see if we can get um, get a pair of them. I don't know if they make them small enough for Shadow, but definitely for Weiji. See if we can get a pair of them to try. Sorry, Negrita. <laughs> we call her Weighty. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty common for dogs, and most people know who have them. The dogs want to stick their head out into the wind, but the concern, of course, is that some, you know, little bit of uh, debris in the in the air is going to hit them in the eye and, and do some damage, or even a bug. You know, that's like on the motorcycle. But with your setup, they've got, like you said, they're behind you, so they're protected from that. But they also have the pillion pooch, which sort of protects them quite a bit. Like they've got to really work to get their heads past they you, really- I guess, into the wind. They really do, and they can't do that for very long. Yeah. It, it really wears them out if they're trying to do that. Where do you guys head to now? We're now we're just about to take off in the next month or so for Europe, uh, a pretty short trip through Europe. Really, our next destination is Africa, so Europe is just a means of getting to Africa. We haven't even worked out what crossing we're going to take, which way we're going to go. We've, we've discussed going through Italy to Tunisia or through Spain into Morocco, but we've also thought about going to Greece and spending a month working with the refugees um, in the in the camps in Greece, and then maybe hopping over to Egypt from there. Or, um, uh, yeah, we, uh, we 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 remain always flexible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Africa is going to be a, a huge destination for you. Is, are there some things that you anticipate, some some problems you anticipate right now before you're you're even getting into the finite planning of it that you'll run into traveling with dogs? 
I'm worried that they'll bark at elephants or something and elephants will come charging at us. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good concern. I like that. <laughs> something to be careful of. <laughs> Especially the little one. She thinks she's a lot bigger than she actually is. <laughs> This is going to be very different for us because in the Americas, we didn't need a visa for any country we, we traveled into and there was no need for a carne. It was uh, just turn up and do a, um, a temporary import at every border crossing. So in Africa, we're, we're going to be traveling with a carne. We're going to need visas for us for a lot of the countries. Um, the dogs, they've got their rabies vaccination. We're hoping that they're going to be that that's going to be the main thing for them in in Africa as well. And I've I've done a little bit of research, but I, I we're looking at about um, twenty five countries in Africa, and I haven't checked all of their websites out. But the ones I have checked out, it's uh, it looks pretty much the same. But um, until we actually get on the road and do it and turn up at a border, we don't really know. <laughs> Well, Stuart and Janelle, great to meet you. Good luck traveling Africa and keep in touch. Let us know how Africa goes. I'm, I'm curious about this. Yeah, thank, thanks very much for taking the time, Jim. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I've been speaking with Stuart and Janelle Clark, who were stopped over in the UK while getting ready to head to Africa for the next leg of their journey. And you can find out more about them, their travels, and their carrier for the dog on the back of the motorcycle. Drop by their website, www.thepacktrack.com. Dot com And that link will be in our show notes. Did your dog start barking at the start of this? Mine did. Coming up, we're going to talk with Eric Garagian and his dog. Well, we're not going to talk to his dog, but Eric Garagian about his dog spirit that travels around in the sidecar with him. Stay with us. Adventure Rider Radio is supported by Aerostitch. Aerostitch, the best way to ride more is to make your riding the easiest, fastest way to get from A to B. Simple, everyday commuting, errands, long distance, adventure riding, whatever. They've been doing it for 33 years. That says something. You know Aerostitch is a rider-driven company. The owner himself is a hardcore rider and very much into motorcycling. They've got a ride more guarantee, which I absolutely love. You try any Aerostitch one-piece R3 or Rowcrafter riding suit for one month, and if you're not riding more than you did before you received it, then you can send it back, get a full refund, no questions asked. Visit their website for details, www.aerostitch.com forward slash ARR, and definitely use the forward slash ARR. Two reasons. One, it lets them know you came from Adventure Rider Radio, but the second one, it'll get you 10% off on your first purchase or free shipping on your next order for your existing customers. Don't forget to check their catalog out too. You got to get that catalog. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Spirit, the dog, has been riding in Eric Gregan's sidecar for over 10 years now. They've traveled all over the United States and into Canada. It's become a way of life for them as they move from place to place, living on the road most of the time. Era and his companion, Spirit, are in sync with the way they live, and Era has gotten to know his friend very well over the years. So he has some great insight into extended travel by motorcycle with dogs. I'm speaking with Eric Gregian, who travels with his dog in his sidecar. Now, we had Eric on some time ago. Eric, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here. 
Yeah, great to have you on again. You're still traveling around with your dog named Spirit in your sidecar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For those who may not remember or maybe didn't hear you originally on this show, you've been a motorcyclist for a long time. You came across Spirit and you decided to take him with you. Was that what got you the sidecar? Uh, actually, it is Spirit who made me get the sidecar because I was in a low place in my life after losing my only child son and I rescued spirit and you know I didn't want to leave him behind when I went riding I hadn't left yet so I decided hey why don't I get a sidecar and problem solved when you got Spirit, if I remember correctly, you got him from a shelter. What was his yeah. initial reaction to traveling with a bike? You know, I still, I wasn't doing any videos at the time. I mean, I, I didn't even know what internet was at the time. And uh, this is somewhere around November 2005, because we got on the road November 6, 2006. It's going to be almost 10 years we're on the road. So we were together for a year before we left. I had pre-ordered some goggles for him. Just, I don't know, just as a kick, you know. And he just jumped in the sidecar. I put his goggles on and that was it. There was no hesitation. There was no, you know, please jump in the sidecar, stay put, uh, and I only had a leash that was attached to his sidecar. Of course, all has changed now. You know, I devised a, a three-point, um, what would you call that? Yeah, three-point tr- harness three point system. Harness, yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's been a lot of modifications since. And th- that was it. I hate to say it, but there's really no story to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's odd because I just talked with somebody else who tried the goggles and the dog, and no matter what they do, they can't get the dog to keep wearing them. No, no, he's 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 the perfect sidecar guy. Uh, the only time he'll take his goggles off, and uh, that hasn't proved much. Also, there's a company called Rex Specs K9. They're making incredible goggles for dogs now, which actually are used by the military, the Marines, the Coast Guard, you name it. Uh, Let's say I stop at the post office like I did a couple days ago. I just leave his goggles on because he knows how to take them off. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one less thing I have to do for him, you know. He doesn't know how to put them on, but he knows how to take them off. And that's that, you know. You just mentioned the, the company that's making the goggles, and you said the military use them? You mean the, like military dogs are wearing goggles? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, re- uh, you know, earthquake, bombing, um, rescue dogs, uh, military dogs, Coast Guard dogs. I've actually seen a video of a of a German Shepherd with the Rexpex K9 laying down 
with the goggles on, and they also make military-grade uh, earmuffs for the dogs, which I wish I would have known that years ago. And the dog's handler has, a, I guess, an M16 or something like that on his back. He's using the dog as a tripod, and he's firing, and the dog is not even clinching. Wow. I mean, it's it's just an incredible uh, video. There's also uh, a dog that works in a in a smaller airport uh, that wears those goggles. The dog's job is to chase the birds, so <laughs> the airplanes can land and take off safely. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, it's a pretty pretty awesome video. That that dog's working all day long. <laughs> well, you mentioned the three-point harness that you've designed there. So can you describe that? Yeah, that was really important. What happened is a few years back, I thought Spirit should be standing on a cushy foam cushion. And just, you know, just a leash is enough. Uh, the leash tied to to the bar in the back of him, and he started losing a lot of weight. Um, I was in Tucson at the time. A friend of mine gave me the idea, why don't you take him to the vet, blah, blah, blah. So I did. It was kind of in a uppity neighborhood, and $300 later and all kinds of tests, uh, there comes this doctor with a prescription for Xanax for my dog, <laughs> which I gave right back to her. I said, I'm not putting my dog on Xanax. I mean, you got to be kidding me. And by the time I was doing some videos already, and I have one of the cameras mounted behind him, and as I was watching it, I realized that spirit is really moving a lot. And what I want to say is, imagine yourself on your hands and knees in a sidecar, constantly moving all day. All your muscles in your body are, are going to work, and you will lose weight. So I figured I'm going to change the cushion. I got a much firmer foam. And I made a three-point harness where he could still move and lay down, but he's not all over the place. And actually, I posted that on Adventure Rider because I really like to help other, you know, other sidecar riders that have a dog uh, for the well-being of their dog. So that's how... The three-point harness came about. And as soon as I got the three-point harness done, uh, one is clipped to his collar and one on each side to the sidecar with, with eyelets and uh, carabiners. He gained his weight back. And it was, it was really, really great. So I, I know a lot of riders there have hopefully... Um, you know, adopted the three-point harness because I, I really frown when I see a dog in a sidecar with just a leash and the dog is 
is bouncing all over the place, especially when we go off-road. There's there's quite a bit of bouncing going on. Does the three-point harness allow him to stand up? Like, can he actually stand up and stuff, or is it sort of holding him in, in a position? No, no, he's standing up. He's sitting. He just got that support from the, from the, the three straps. Exactly. He's sitting on his behind, and his front legs are up. Right. Yet, yet, he can still lay down. He only lays down when it rains. Hmm. He's intelligent enough to know that, hey, I'm going to put my head in the nose of the sidecar when it rains. Or maybe at the end of a long day, which is kind of rare. We don't really do huge, huge mileage, you know. 300 miles a day is about average for us. Let's talk about Spirit's gear that you take with you when you ride. Uh, really, with a sidecar, I guess it's not a problem because as far as dog food, dog food being bulky, certainly for anyone who rides with their dog on the back of their bike, dog food becomes a, a big deal because you can't take a lot of it with you. But I, I guess with you, you could probably buy a, a full-size bag of dog food and stuff it in there and you're all set. Uh Pretty much. Uh, I think the food that I get uh, is about 15-pound, 17-pound bags. And that goes in a, you know, in a Nortlib bag, one of those. All my bags are uh, waterproof bags. You know, they're like river bags. And it just goes there with a one-cup scooper that always stays in there. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we always have, what, three and a half gallons of water, and we definitely stop on the hour. I mean, definitely, definitely. Um, there's also temperature to consider. I have a, uh, one of my saying is, especially in the summer, uh, no shade, no stop. If it's anything over... You know, 85, 90 degrees, there's no shade. We don't stop. After half an hour, I start looking for shade. But we're, you know, we're kind of spoiled because we travel with the weather. You know, we generally, throughout the whole year, never see over 80 degrees. I always manage to follow the weather summer we're at 9,000 feet 10,000 feet all summer and then winter we come back down south so uh, and he's spoiled too for him anything over 80 degrees is hot what about things like um, dealing with the sun you mentioned you know looking for shade what about when you're riding and the the sun is beating down on you and and even moisture things like that do you have to do anything as far as eyes or mouth or anything for the dog those sorts of things uh, no, he's, you know, he's, he's got his goggles. Um, I wet him. He's got a wet, uh, he's got a wet vest, which I can soak, you know, on the hour. Um, uh, no, as long as, you know, as long as we're moving, uh, he's fine and I'm fine. Uh, like I said, shade shade is the key. Shade is the key. There, there's just no ways about it. And it just falls that in the summer, we're up north. We are at elevation. 
there are forests, there are trees, and there's a lot of shade. In the winter, we're back south, you know, Big Bend, Texas, Arizona, um, Eastern California sometimes. And we don't need trees there because it's cold and actually the sun feels pretty good. So you travel to Canada and, and do you go to Mexico as well? I don't go to Mexico anymore. <laughs> I don't know. I Okay, so you, but you're crossing the border to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So what sort of things do you have to do to prepare for border crossings both in both directions? Uh you just really have to make sure that he's had his rabies shots um a year prior. I mean, you got a a one year window for the rabies shots. That's really the only shot they look at. Besides that, it's it's no problem at all. Are they very strict? Are they checking you for anything? Do they ask a lot of questions about the dog? Do they you yeah. know is- uh, they they ask the Canadians ask a lot of questions about me. <laughs> <laughs> they don't bother with the dog. It's just about you. What no, are they don't bother with the dog. And uh, even in southern Texas, where we go to Big Bend, you can't leave the area without going through uh, Border Patrol who has drug dogs. But as soon as they see Spirit, uh, they pull the the drug dogs away from us. I always said, I don't don't even drink, I don't do drugs, but I always say I'd be the perfect candidate to pass drugs through the Border Patrol because they they don't want the dogs to, to, uh, to, to relate with each other. But the Canadians, you know, sometimes they have asked a lot of questions to the point where I made a mistake one day. I, because I, I'm a Florida resident and I was on the Vancouver side, and the guy kept grilling me. You know, why am I so far up? Why, why, why? You know, it's psychological. They keep asking you the same questions over and over. And finally, I asked the guy if he's if he's ever ridden a motorcycle, and he said no. And I said, well. I said, you wouldn't understand, Dan. So they kept us for a few hours. <laughs> <laughs> but no problem with the dog. They're, they don't They don't start asking you questions, why are you traveling with the dog, nothing like that. It's, it's just more normal border crossing problems. Yeah, and, you know, I'm not the only one anymore. Ten years ago, 11 years ago, it was kind of a novelty, I have to say. Uh, but now I'm going to say there's hundreds of sidecarists with a dog and sometimes they get a sidecar so they can get a dog or they get a dog so they can get a sidecar. I mean, they're really, I only knew, I think one or two other riders that had a dog in a sidecar about 10 years ago. And it's it's still a circus, you know. It was never intended to be a circus, but um, I try to stop in non-crowded areas because, I don't know, people have never seen a dog in the sidecar with goggles and a helmet and, you know. By 5 o'clock, you're kind of tired of that. It's like, leave me alone. <laughs> 
What about camping with a dog? Are there places you find you go to? I think you do mostly wild camping from what I remember before when we talked. Yeah. But do you find you get to any places where you're sort of not welcome with a dog? Oh, yeah. 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 Sometimes we do. We do primitive camping. Definitely. BLM land, national forests. Yeah. Uh, or but sometimes, sometimes, you know, between point A and point B, uh, it's getting late in the day. There's nothing around us. We have, unfortunately, to check in into a campground. I don't like campgrounds. I don't like RV parks, but sometimes you have to. And um, what's that chain of campgrounds? They have a yellow sign. The KOA? KOA, yeah. KOA doesn't allow uh, German Shepherds, Rottweilers, pit bulls, and supposedly it's all because of the insurance. And But besides that, I love camping with spirit. I just love camping with spirit. I can even go as far as saying there might be some spaces where maybe I would not camp alone because he's a great, great alarm. Yeah, that's true. The the dogs are, are certainly great for like, well, even if it's not protection, just the, like you said, the alarm, it's, yeah, it makes a huge yeah. difference. And they tend to spot things that and hear things that we don't hear. So as far as tips go, what sort of tips would you have? Or, or are there any for someone who's thinking of traveling with their dog that you have learned over the years? Well, what I've learned is, you know, respect your dog and take good care of your dog because your dog will take good care of you. And by that, I do mean physically and mentally. Dogs give a lot. And by them giving a lot, I, and this is just my personal opinion, uh, we have a lot to learn from dogs. I've, I've learned a lot about being in the moment with my dog. You know, uh, now, you know, like Spirit right now, I don't know what time it is, maybe one thirty. He's not worried about his di- dinner. You know, he's now. And that's a wonderful way to live. So you take care of them. They take care of you. Uh Never lose sight of your dog. Uh, Spirit is generally off the leash, but as soon as we get in a little bit urban area, he's back on the leash. He doesn't do very well with the leash, but that's, you know, that's just the way it goes. Um, If you decide to stop, we, I rarely eat out. I... I mean, I cooked all my life and I, I don't, as a job, I don't like to eat out that much. I prefer have peanut butter and jelly <laughs> than eating out most of the time. But if you're going to stop to eat out, definitely, if you're going to sit somewhere, make sure you have a visual on your dog. That's very, very important. Once in a while, I have met with friends or readers of our journal 
that want to have lunch with me and I can't unless let's say it's a cafe we can sit on a sidewalk and spirit is right there because people will steal dogs lately there's been quite a few dogs uh, we're in big band right now that have been stolen from uh, Fort Davis which is about 80 miles from here and Marfa which is 100 miles from here actually I was just talking to the to the guy that roast uh, our local coffee and his dog was stolen a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and of course you're going to say why would anyone steal a dog well I don't know it just happened so it, there's definitely compromises uh, traveling with a dog you know you can't go to the movies uh, if you're stuck and you really really last resort have to get a motel room there's some motels that will not allow you to have a dog or you got to pay an arm and a leg um, if you're stuck having to go to a campground some campgrounds won't allow you um, little villages are pretty cool because they're much safer I couldn't see going to Houston for example and parking in front of uh, I don't know Kroger or whatever food store and going in for an hour food shopping I can't I can't do that you know so there's compromises and you live with it it's a choice but uh, I don't know I'm I'm happy with the compromises well, Era, thank you very much. All great tips. I appreciate it. Okay. Okay. Stay in touch. Thanks, Era. All right. Have a great day, okay? I've been speaking with Era Garegian, and you can follow Era and his dog Spirit by visiting their website, www.theoasisofmysoul.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Aileen Toyton is a Scottish seamstress that makes one-piece dog suits, and she's designed a Kevlar motorcycle suit, the first ever of its kind in the UK. She was contacted by a motorcyclist who wanted to take his dog along in his sidecar, but he wanted the dog to be as safe as possible, maybe as safe as he was with his riding gear on. And now she takes orders from all over the world. My name is Aileen Toynton. I live in the very north of Scotland, near Inverness, and I make made-to-measure bodysuits for dogs, and they are primarily to keep the dogs warm and clean and dry. Um, But quite recently, I started making them in Kevlar for dogs who want to ride on motorbikes or in sidecars so that they have the protection of the Kevlar, which is a very tough material, a non-tear fabric. And then on top of that, they wear a canine clean coat in a polar arctic fleece, um, which is like a, a onesie, which stops the wind chill factor on the dogs and um, it makes it more comfortable for them when they're on the bike. Aileen, how does one get into making dog coats? How did you come into that? Well, I have a little American Cocker Spaniel called Toto and he has very long hair. And in the winter time, because we get very poor weather in Scotland, unfortunately, he was always wet and cold and dirty. And I could never find anything on the internet that fitted him. It was always too long or too short and didn't cover everything. So I 
got a secondhand sewing machine and went to night school. And I made all these prototypes to try and find something that kept my little dog clean and dry. And I walked the streets here in fear that everybody would laugh at me because my little dog had all these different (laughs) coloured onesies on until I could find one that, you know, that worked, you know, that kept him clean and dry, but that he could still run around and do the toilet and everything in. And eventually I perfected it and I, I was happy with it. But it never occurred to me that other people might be fed up of cold, dirty, wet dogs. And then my friends were all saying to me, would you make one for, you know, our dog? And so I made them for friends. And then eventually somebody said, you know, you really should be selling these. And then, and I did, and I was, I didn't think anybody would buy anything from me. I had no sales training or anything. But anyway, I started making these coats and it was primarily for show dogs because I understand people with beautiful show dogs want to keep those dogs looking beautiful. But now, four years down the line, everybody with pets, everybody with their Shih Tzus and their Bichons and their Poodles and and their Greyhounds, you know, everybody's fed up of cold, dirty, wet dogs the world over. It wasn't just me. And so here I am um, in the north of Scotland. And thanks to the Internet, I have an international business. It's just wonderful. And it's such fun because I'm dealing with doggy people all the time. That's amazing. I, I love hearing businesses that grow organically like that. So, okay, so you're making dog coats. How do you get into making dog coats for motorcycles? Well, um, about Christmas time last year, a guy called Steve Hawley um, contacted me. He has a lovely black Labrador called Rene, and he loves to ride his motorbike, go on long tours, but he hated leaving his lovely Labrador behind because she's his best friend. But he he was weary about taking her on the bike. He wanted to protect her as much as he could. And he had a good harness for her. And he had bought doggles to protect her eyes. Uh, But he couldn't find a bodysuit that was made of, you know, for, for motorbike dogs. So he had seen my design on the Internet of the complete bodysuit. And he asked me if I could source Kevlar and make, you know, a prototype and of course, coming to me at Christmas time, the winter time is such a busy time for me because it's just me and the sewing machine. And, I, you know, I'm flat out over the winter. But I, I did take the time. And by April time, we had got a coat made up for, for this Renee. And I travelled down south to the middle of England and I met up with Steve and Renee. And we tried this uh, Kevlar bodysuit on and it fitted her. And then we put one of my canine clean coats, the fleecy one, on the top. And we got her into the sidecar and he drove off. And of course, now he goes on off on trips on his bike. And he said before she had the two coats on, she used to sit down low in the sidecar because obviously she got the wind chill factor. But now, the, obviously, the Kevlar is quite a, a dense coat, a dense fabric. And then she's got the, the fleecy onesie on the top. And she just sits up now because she's not getting cold. Um, so, so that was it was Steve's idea that got me into that, and I publicised it. And he wasn't the only hairy biker, and apparently there's lots of people who want to take their dogs uh, on motorbikes. So it's been a real um, surprise to me, and it's much more so in America and Canada because your roads are far better for touring um, than up here, I'm afraid, and your weather is so much better than ours. 
Well, let's talk about the, the coats then that are made for motorcycles. Kevlar, that's that's difficult to work with for sure. What makes it a dog coat for motorcycling in particular? Well, it's the Kevlar fabric. It's designed to be very tough and it doesn't tear. So obviously, yes, uh, when I'm trying to sew it and cut it, it's really difficult. And I had to buy special Kevlar shears. Uh, but even with them, it's like just so difficult to cut. But funnily enough, it's easy to sew. The, with a small needle, it is made up of little holes and it does sew up well. And the protection for the dog is that it's it's completely encased in this bodysuit. It's right down to its ankles and it's got a hood piece. So should it come off the bike, it like a person, its skin hopefully is not going to tear because of this Kevlar fabric. Um, people's motorbike gear underneath the leather has a layer of Kevlar. Uh, so that's that's what it is. What about straps um, or hold downs? I know some people use it in three-point harnesses for, for instance, to ride in a sidecar. We just talked with a fellow named Eric Regan who he, he uses that method. Are there straps built into this or, or other things that make it suitable for motorcycling? No, the, the harness would be something that you would buy separately. I, have, I make the Kevlar bodysuit and then on top of that, um, you would wear the canine clean coat the, the fleecy one to stop the wind chill factor and then on top of that you would put you would harness them and put their doggles on so when someone wants to order one for their dog what do they do do you have set made sizes for it do they have a pattern that they look at on the internet and they sort of hold it up to their dog how, how does that work no there's no set made sizes which is why i started to make these coats in the first place because there are not two dogs the same shape and size so every coat is a custom coat every single one and I think it's even more important if a dog's going to be sitting on the back of a trike or in a sidecar you really want you know for some period of time you really want it to be comfortable Um, and people sometimes say oh my dog doesn't like a dog coat yeah it probably doesn't because it's never had anything that fitted it and and so if it's not comfortable it's not going to like a a bodysuit or a dog coat So, so it's really difficult to, to get something to fit. So therefore, I thought, you know, the only way of doing this is making to measure. And that's my business. And, you know, within breeds, you know, one Cocker Spaniel is not the same as any other. They're wider in the front and they're longer in the back and bigger bones. So, yeah, all of mine are unique and made to measure to fit that dog. So if someone wants to order one and they go to your website, what are they met with? Are they met with an, an instructions on how to measure their dog? Uh, yes, there's a measurement page where there's a video of me measuring my little dog. There's instructions of what to measure written down. Um, and there are also instructions on the order form that's there to download. But very often now, even though I'm based in the north of Scotland, I Skype measure dogs all over the world. We arrange a mutual time and then we, we click in and I can see the dog in front of me and I tell people what to measure where to put the tape, and that's a, a brilliant, easy way of doing it. I just tell them over the phone what to measure. That is really neat. Whoa, a useful thing for Skype. That's incredible. So technology, Amazing. again, because you even mentioned that now you're this international business, and before, I guess, you probably would have only sold, you know, half a dozen coats to your friends, but now it's, it's yeah. full-time. It's the internet, isn't it? And I just think that's so wonderful because we are in such a remote area, and you would have thought that you couldn't run a business like this from the very north of Scotland. 
But you can if you have the internet. And I used to, when I first started, I used to go to lots of dog shows, you know, travel away to the south of England. And we, in fact, we've traveled abroad a lot. But now I, I do all my business now just on the internet. I do a lot through Facebook. Um, and, and Google brings so many people my way. And that was Aileen Toyton from Canine Clean Coats in the UK. And you can find out more and maybe even order a suit from her at www.canincleancoats.co.uk. Well, in just a minute, I'm going to be speaking with Zach Kerlick, who is a journalist for Canada Moto Guide, who wrote an article about the death or the impending death of the 650 singles, those ones we love. Stick around. We'll be right back with more. Tour USA is a motorcycle rental company based near Seattle, Washington, the perfect launching point for any trip along the West Coast of the United States and Canada, boasting top world destinations for adventure riders from all over the world. Tour USA bikes are all equipped with protection for adventure travel, including Pelican panniers, to ensure less potential damage should you drop it. Whether you want to rent an adventure prep bike for solo travel or if you want to participate in a fully supported event with trainers, guides, support vehicles, the whole bit, Tour USA is there to help make your dream ride come true. Let Tour USA help you dream plan ride. Visit them at www.tourusa.us. That's www.tourusa.us. And always tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, if you love 650 thumpers, that's the 650 single cylinders in adventure bikes, and you've been thinking about buying a new one, you may want to make a move fairly soon once you've heard this. In a recent article on Canada Moto Guide, a rather sensible sounding theory was floated that the single cylinder 650 dual sport bikes are on the verge of disappearing from the manufacturer's lineups. And that could well explain the lack of updates we've seen over, what, maybe 20 years the article, titled The End of Big Thump, was written by moto journalist Zach Kerlick, who supported his theory rather convincingly that there is good reason for the lack of major updates for our big singles. And since we're fans of 650 singles, we decided to contact Kerlick to discuss it here on this show. Uh, my name is Zachary Kerlick. I am a moto journalist in the summer and a commercial fisherman in the winter in St. John, New Brunswick. I write mostly for Canada Moto Guide. I do a bit of scribbling for Roadrunner. Um, and some of your listeners may also read Adventure Motorcycle. I've been involved with Adventure Motorcycle off and on for a long time. Not so much lately, uh, but I actually worked there even before it was in print. So I've been around. Zach, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thanks, Jim. Well, recently you wrote an article for Canada Motor Guide about the death, or at least the fact that the 650 thumpers are on the chopping block, and you you had things to back it up. What made you spot that pattern? Uh, I guess it's because I love 650s uh, single cylinders myself, and I've been riding them for years and kind of watching the market, what's going on. Uh, I know, what, what is Honda bringing out something new? No. Is Suzuki bringing out something new? No. As Kawasaki, no. And then this summer, Yamaha announced that they were canceling the XT660Z for your American listeners. That would be an XT660Z for us Canadian listeners. <laughs> but the same bike, all the same. Yes. Did they say why they were canceling that? Yeah, the reason they gave uh, was it wouldn't meet Euro 4 emissions. 
Um, and it hasn't been sold in a lot of markets anyway for a while. Uh, it was never sold in Canada or the U.S. And I believe it was even missing from some Euro markets. I'm not 100% sure on that. But uh, I do know that they said they would be discontinuing it because it didn't meet Euro 4. And for some reason, that they decided it was not worth the time and money to bring it up to that standard with the new emissions regulations in the EU. So that's the premise of your article, which you were talking about, the fact that the, the 650 singles are, are basically going to die. They're keeping them in there because they've, you know, they've sold. And I guess I assume what's going to happen is one of two things. Either they're going to drop them because the sales are dropping off or because the emission standards will sort of squeeze them out and they're not going to do anything about it. I don't think that the Japanese manufacturers themselves are in any hurry to get rid of those bikes. Uh, it was not that long ago that the Suzuki DR650 was their best-selling motorcycle in Canada. I think it was uh, two or three years ago, maybe. Uh, it, it may still be. I don't know. I am not privy to their up-to-date sales numbers. But for the Japanese perspective, they're making all sorts of money, I think, on these machines. As the R&D was paid for two decades ago, as it was the tooling. And uh, people still buy them. They buy a lot of them, at least in our market they do. Uh, but I don't think they reckon it's worthwhile developing them any further. Uh, if you see the motorcycle industry as a whole, we're going towards a model where you get five or six different bikes or three or four different bikes based off one engine. And that is not going to work for single cylinders. They've tried it in Europe. Uh, they've had street bikes based on the DR650 motor. Um, and I, I know that Nathan Millward had one of those. And I don't think they've ever sold well in those markets. Instead, what we're going to get is what you see already. You've got the CBR500, the CB500F, and the CB500X all based around that same parallel twin. And that's what we're going to see going forward. As far as the manufacturers go, it's easy to get caught up for us as enthusiasts, as bike enthusiasts, to think that it's all about what is good for motorcyclists. And I think you really sort of hit the nail on the head there when you're saying that they're selling lots of bikes and they're interested in, in the profit of it. And of course, that's what drives a, a big corporation. So, I mean, I think that that has to be taken into consideration, the fact that they're worried about sales, but um, they're also worried about investment into these things, how much more they're going to have to update them. You mentioned they're making lots of money because their molds their, and their design is, is, is so old and it's still bringing in money. But we're still seeing the writing on the wall. You're talking now about the twin cylinders. What's the big difference between the twin cylinder and the single cylinder? What is it about those two machines that make it different as far as the manufacturer goes? Well, the manufacturers can stuff a twin in a sport bike platform. They can put it in a naked bike platform. People will buy it. Uh, and they can spend the R&D money once and get a lot of mileage out of it. They're not going to be able to do that with a single-cylinder motor because people don't want single-cylinder street bikes. Okay, now as far as emissions go, is there a difference between a single-cylinder 650 and a twin 650? Yes, there is. Uh I am not an expert in emissions, but the people I have talked to who are basically tell me that the bigger your piston, the more it deforms or your uh, rings will deform when it heats up. And therefore, you get more oil blowing by, which means more pollutants. 
And in the article, I posted a link to the California Air Resource Board uh, pollution documents for the Versus 650 from Kawasaki and the KLR 650. And it's very obvious on those, on those two bikes. One's a twin, one's a, a single cylinder. And the single cylinder just makes far, far more pollution when compared to the twin. So basically, we're looking at the, the cross-platform application of a twin over the single and pollutions. Is that it? Those two things are going to drive the, sort of the death of what we know as the 650 single? I believe so, yes. I don't think that 650 singles are going to completely die off because some companies like KTM are still investing money into them. But I think we're going to see the end of the sort of affordable 650 dual sport slash bottom end adventure bike. The bikes like the KLR 650 that especially in North America have been so popular over the past 20 years for people who wanted a bike that will do it all. I think that those machines are going to be gone, especially at the price point they're at right now. What about the single cylinder, smaller bikes, you know, the, up to 450? The 250 class seems to be alive and well, at least for now. I think you will see over time the air-cooled 200s and 250s will probably start to drop from the lineup. I know that they are not easy to pass emissions tests either. They're not easy to get through emissions tests, but they can do it. Uh, and, of course, you see some newer designs like the WR250, and I think the XT250 now has EFI. And in some markets, the KLX does, uh, the KLX250. So those are going to be, uh, those, that's something the manufacturers still want to, to push is a sort of a real dual sport. And I think we'll see them for a while yet, but I don't think we're going to see anything bigger than a 250. I don't think we're going to see the 350 to 450 class, uh, dual sport class ever come back. So your prediction for EFI on the Kawasaki KLR650 is? Uh, if they thought that they could get a few more years out of it with EFI, if it was a good business decision, they would do it. But the fact that they haven't done it yet really makes me wonder why. Is it going to be canceled or are they just dragging their feet for the last you know, possible minute to, to make the change? Personally, I think the fact that none of these 650s have EFI yet shows that either the Japanese manufacturers are trying to eat every last cent out of those models in their current format or else they just realize there's no point in sinking any more money into them. People are going to buy them as they are, and they're not going to pass pollution tests in the future, whether they have EFI or whether they don't. For those who don't know the difference or haven't ridden them side by side to tell the difference between the single cylinder and the twin of the same size bike, what are they going to notice between the two bikes? Well, first of all, the parallel twin motor, the, the, all the ones I have experience with have always been heavier. Um, and they typically have water cooling, which some people may like, some people might not. Uh, you jump on it, depending how the crank is arranged, it's most likely going to have less bottom end torque and more top end snap. Different parallel twins can be arranged differently to provide various characteristics on the torque curve that may make it similar to a thumper, but that's probably not going to be the case. Some people say, well, you know, Harley-Davidson, look at them. They have big air-cooled cylinders in their bikes, and they're not going anywhere. To which I immediately point out, oh, but they are. Harley-Davidson is drastically changing their lineup because of emissions right now. 
In what ways? Well, not that long ago, all Harley Davidson sold was air-cooled V-twins. They had the Porsche-designed V-rod, but aside from that, they had the Sportsters and the big twins, and that's what they sold. Uh, but now, all of a sudden, in the last five years, we've seen liquid-cooled big twins enter the scene. This year, they just introduced the new Milwaukee 8 motor. And as well, they've got the new Street 500 and Street 750 beginner bikes, which are liquid-cooled. And that, to me, says Harley-Davidson also sees the writing on the wall, and they're going to be getting rid of their air-cooled bikes eventually as well for the same problems. Well, I guess we'll have to uh, hang in there and see just how long our 650 singles, our beloved 650 singles, hang around for us. Zach, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. And that was Zach Kerlick from Canada Moto Guide. You can read his articles and many more at canadamotoguide.com. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by the following. Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, the Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system, and it'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. www.cyclepump.com www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system that's easy to use and switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and of course we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it hey i want to thank you if you've been one of the ones that have donated over the past couple years we really appreciate it it makes a big difference as i've said before the show is built on a model of some advertising with some donations so if you haven't already or you have and you can again consider dropping by our website www.adventureriderradio.com and clicking on the donate button of course anything ten dollars or more will get a sticker sent back to you in the mail showing our appreciation for it we really appreciate it and it certainly helps fill the gaps here at adventure rider radio of course i want to thank our producer elizabeth martin for all the work she does on the show don't forget to drop by our facebook page check out what's going on there we're posting stuff on there all the time and uh, don't forget to like the page if you haven't already well now no excuses time to get out there and ride your bike get the se- if you're in the northern hemisphere i mean you want to get that last little bit of the season it's slipping away from us really really quick get your stuff on go for a ride take your dog i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio see you next week You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio, and this is Tiffany Coates, on the line from Land's End in England. (laughs) 